welcome back to Slightly Foxed and a belated Happy New Year. Now say the name Jean Rhys and most of us think of Wide Sargasso Sea, her dark imagining of the early life of Antoinette Cosway, later to be Mrs Rochester, the crazed wife in the attic from Jane Eyre. But that novel was the last Rhys ever wrote and her own life would have made a pretty compelling, if similarly dark, novel. Today, we're joined by her distinguished biographer, Miranda Seymour, who published her definitive study of the life and work of Jean Rhys last year. I'll introduce her in a moment, but first, my name is Philippa Lamb, and today I'm joined at the Slightly Fox kitchen table in Hoxton Square, East London, by three of the Fox team. Gail Perkis, hello. Hi, nice to be back. And Hazelwood. Hello. Anna Kirk also. Hello. So, Gail, uh, 2023, it's a big year for Slightly Fox. It's a very big year for Slightly Fox because it marks the beginning of our 20th anniversary and at the end of the year we'll be publishing our 80th issue. So add those together and we're going to celebrate 100. It's amazing, isn't it? Which is very exciting, but that's all in the future. At the moment, we had a frantic Christmas. Now we're like our dogs. We're turning around in our baskets (laughs) and we are tidying up the office. The spring issue is at the printer and has got some lovely things in. Starts with a very, very funny article about the Asterix books. Your favourite. With dogmatics, of course, included. <laughs> we have a delightful piece on listening to the Palliser novels. Something on... And in true Slightly Fox style, that is the doorbell. <laughs> Let's carry on anyway. Yes. A delightful piece by Margaret Drabble on an Edith Wharton novel. An account of the first circumnavigation of the globe, single-handed, non-stop. And we've also got an article by our guest Miranda on Georgina Harding's Harvest Trilogy, which for me was a wonderful discovery of novels I'd not come across before. Well, you mentioned dogs. Do we have any dogs today? No, I'm afraid um, poor old Chudley is slightly on his last legs, sad to say. So he's in Devon, as is Stanley, and poor Jess has got flu, so Dusty's not here either. No office dogs. Not today, I'm sorry everyone start the year without the dogs. We know, because the listeners tell us how much they love the dogs. I sometimes think they love the dogs more than they love us. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Um, More Fox News later. Let's meet our guest, Miranda Seymour. Miranda, welcome. Lovely to be here with you. Now, I mean, Reese. She hasn't really been seen as a substantial literary figure, has she, since she died in 79. What triggered your interest in her? My interest began rather surprisingly because I have to make a disclosure that I've been married three times. Um, This was husband number one, who, as we were parting pretty much, handed me Jean Reese's memoir, Smile Please, Ah. and said, I think you'll find that you have something in common which I realised afterwards had a definite barb in it. Yeah, was that a more about her. It I think like <laughs> more than loaded. Anyway, it was a very, like all of Jean Reese's works, it's a tiny little book. Smile, Please was the story of Jean Reese's childhood in Dominica, an island owned by the English among the French islands, Guadeloupe and Martinique, where she was born in 1890. And Smile, Please tells the story of Reese's life from when she grew up to the point where she was in Paris in 1924 and an absolutely clinch moment in Reese's career met for Maddox Ward as her first husband was going to prison. It's quite a volatile life. Anyway, I read this short very, very simply written declarative memoir. And I thought I was reading something written by somebody of my own age. That was at that time about 27. It was an immense shock to find it had been dictated by a woman in her late 70s. And that's what really bewitched me about Reese from the start, was the fact that 
as an old lady, she still had this absolute ability to write like a young woman and to remember everything, every detail of this Dominican childhood. Tell us a bit about her childhood in Dominica. Jean Rees was born into a complicated family in 1890 in Dominica. Her mother, who was a very, very complex, volatile character, her mother was a white Creole. She was the great-granddaughter of a planter. But don't think like Barbados, Jamaica, these huge plantation estates. Dominica is a really extraordinary island. It's got nine volcanoes, 365 rivers, 400 ravines. It's really unconquerable, and you certainly aren't going to become a rich planter on it. So even Jean Reese's maternal family never did all that well. By the time Jean Reese was born, as Gwendolyn Reese Williams, a very, very beautiful, blonde, blue-eyed child in a family of very dark-haired, heavily built siblings, mother and Welsh father. So she was the odd one out, and I think that's the key element in Jean Reese right from the start, was that she was an island that was 99% black, where the white families had become impoverished and looked down upon by what were called, and still are called today, the mulatocracy. Really? Oh, yeah, absolutely, the mulatocracy. And that's how that community described themselves? Yes, proudly. And so when Jean Rees was growing up, and I think very rapidly showed herself to be a reader, a writer. She was writing little plays for her siblings to act in. And her mother, with whom she had an extremely strange relationship, hated the idea of clever women, hated the idea of this brilliant child getting an education, whipped her almost daily until she was 12 years old for no reason at all. I was amazed when I read that in your book. So when Jean Rees was actually seduced by a strange visitor to the island, Mr Howard, about whom she wrote again and again and again obsessively. At a young age. At a very young age. She was either 12 or 14, we're not quite sure. But what we do know is that Jean Rees writing about it said that Mr Howard, having thrust a hand down her dress and asked how old she was and said 14 is quite old enough for an affair then started this verbal abuse if you like with stories of having her flogged having her waiting naked at his table wearing only a garland of roses and Jean Rees writing about this and about the whippings said he knew me it fitted like a hook to an eye And I'm sure that she's referring to this awful thing of the mother having really beaten her into submission. And that was her expectation. That was her expectation. That's what love looked like. But to go back to how much of an outsider she was, which I think is really important, her father got her into the convent school on the island. When Jean went there, Gwendolyn, as she was then, then, as she was then, she was bewitched by these beautiful mulatto, as she called them, girls, with whom she was sitting. She tried to make friends with them. And she said, I have never seen such hatred in girls' eyes. And I think it's at that moment that she realised how much of an outsider she was. So even before, in 1907, age 16, she came to England because she'd won a place at the Perth School in Cambridge, which was one of the only schools in England for girls in those days. And so this brilliant young girl from the Caribbean arrived. 
And as luck would have it, the book they were reading when she arrived was Jane Eyre. Well, this brilliant young girl didn't know, how could she know, that she had a Caribbean accent. And so within barely a chapter of reading the book, certainly when they encountered Bertha Mason, Jean had been identified by her schoolmates as the Hottentot, the Savage, Bertha. And so I think right at that point, early on, this connection to the madwoman in the attic who comes from the Caribbean, not at all understood by Charlotte Bronte. She's a grotesque caricature. Jean Reese is right about that. And I think that's what sparked it. That's the root of it. Yeah, I think so. And what a shock it must have been to have arrived from a tropical island with volcanoes and hurricanes Mm. and lush Mm. vegetation to Cambridge before the First World War. It's very striking to me how when I was reading about the Empire Windrush and people arriving then, and of course Jean Rhys knew all of that world because in 1948 when they arrived she was living in the very part of London where many of them were living in sort of awful basements run by people very much for a exploitatively. And I think her empathy with them, which appears in one of my favourite of her short stories, which is called Let Them Call It Jazz, which very much responds to those people. And back in 1907, when she arrived, she had exactly the experience that they described because the Windrush arrivals thought of England as the mother country that was going to welcome them. They were going to be loved. And that's exactly how she felt. Mm. And it was this absolute shock of betrayal and exclusion that was terrible for her. She fell into quite a rackety way of life when she left school, didn't she? She certainly did. Well, first of all, it started quite well. After school, even before she left Dominica, she was set on becoming a great actress. Not any old actress, but a Sarah Bernhardt <laughs> or something like that. Starting to understand the woman. Exactly. Aiming no, high. <laughs> she, she, she aimed high, always. So after school... She actually got into the Beerbohm Tree School of Acting, the predecessor of RADA. And according to all the reports, she did astonishingly well. But usual old thing. Her father wrote to the master and said, how is she doing? And this wretched man called Mr Barnes wrote back to Dominica and said, your daughter is brilliant. But with that accent, she'll never get anywhere. So what happened was Jean was yanked out of the school, sorry, Gwendolyn, and she is supposed to be sent back to Dominica, but she's damned if she's leaving. Even though she feels an outsider and lost, she is not going back, probably not to the mother, I suspect. Yes. So Jean Reese ran away from her aunt in London, got herself an audition, did a little tap dance. Remember where pre-war, that show an anchor, dear, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and they said, you'll do just fine. We're going to put you into the touring company of our Miss Gibbs. It's a wonderful, lilting romances. What she hadn't quite realised was the difference between being a gaiety girl in London, when you might indeed marry a duke or wonderful things might happen. And it happen. did happen, didn't it? And yeah. it did happen quite often. But... 
poor Jean was out on tour and she describes it in Smile Please in a way that makes you realise what a tough world it was. It was no actors staying here and often I'm afraid no Irish and no a few other people as well, but very unwelcome everywhere. Often having to jump out of a window to avoid paying, paying <laughs> the night's fee. But the interesting thing is that both in Voyage in the Dark, which is the novel that describes this most, and in Smile Please, what comes across is a real sense of happiness. And if there's one group among whom she never felt like an outsider, it was the chorus girls. They took her as she was. Yeah. Yes, because they were all outsiders in a way, weren't they? It's a good point. I think that's it. Nobody was making judgment on anybody else. But then, of course, what happened was almost the Gaiety Girl romance because she caught the eye of Lancelot Hugh Smith, a very posh family. Father was the governor of the Bank of England. And Lancelot, it would seem, had never had an affair before, never had an affair again. But Jean was his very discreet beloved. And in the good old-fashioned way, still pre-First War, he bought her a little flat, gave her a dress allowance, paid for her taxes. <coughs> she could visit his home in Charles Street Mayfair for activity but <laughs> I'm trying to think of a polite term but activity won't do <laughs> but nevertheless it's a very strange and touching relationship Lancelot was obviously a very closed and shy man and he was on some level bewitched by her but she thought he'd marry her mm-hmm. and of course he was never going to no marry her of doing so. she did become pregnant he paid for an abortion there are heartbreaking descriptions of this in smile please where it's very clear that it did really break her heart yeah but the good side of it is that lancelot remained as her good friend loyal supporter and advisor all the way through for the next 10 years She trusted him. He would lend her money. She wasn't really unkind about him in After Leaving Mr. Mackenzie. She paints a portrait of him as Mr. Neil James, who the heroine goes to visit to touch for a bit of money. And the only little cut at him she makes is when he says, oh, you know, come in, come in, and I'm so delighted to see you, my dear. I've got all the time in the world. 20 minutes? 20 minutes? I think it might be 30 minutes, but it's very defined. And she actually, in the way Jean Rhys does, she just nails him. He did break it off in a rather ghastly way, didn't he? He went of a text. Almost like that. What happened was he went off to America on a business trip, wrote her that kind of awful letter, you know. Yes. It's over, dear. But you'll get an allowance. And gritting her teeth, poor thing, because think of her life at this point. Her father has died. Her mother and her siblings are hanging on by their teeth out in Dominica, but they've got no money at all and will eventually arrive after the war, all sharing one house in Acton. She's got nothing to go back to. She's got nobody except her chorus girl friends. She's terribly young and she's got no money at all. So back to Jean, in 1911, she's gritting her teeth, living on an allowance, goes off to Chelsea at the suggestion of a friend who says you can get work as a model, modelling nude, which she does for a bit, lives a kind of pretty rackety life in that amazing pre-war Chelsea world, which, I mean, it makes the 20s look downright quiet. It was wild. (laughs) And she was right in the centre of all that. But really the next important thing that happened in her life, she'd started writing in Chelsea, 
Percy and describes that in one chapter of her memoir as just a moment when she realised she got to set down the whole story of Lancelot and wrote overnight. She found herself living during the war in a boarding house in Bloomsbury. She went to work rather unexpectedly in the pensions office, newly set up in Chelsea. And it's quite interesting because the pensions office then was brutally snobbish. I was astonished by what I read about it. She was in the boarding house when, rather like fairy story, a charming young man turned up at a tea party one of the refugees in the boarding house was having. He was called Jean Langlet. He was probably Dutch. Incredibly charismatic, took her out to the Café Royal, gave her lovely scent and proposed to her. And Jean accepted at once, whereupon Jean Langlet said, sorry, dear, but I've got to go back to Europe on a secret mission, but we'll be in touch after the war and I will marry you. Well, come the end of the war, a letter comes through and he says, actually, could you come to The Hague? He told her wonderful stories about being in Paris. Jean grew up absolutely bilingual and Paris was her goal. But so not The Hague. Uh, not The Hague, not The Hague. But what she didn't know was why Jean Langlet had said, come to The Hague and we'll get married there. The why was that he had a wife and child living in Paris. Yeah. But she did have a meeting with Lancelot. At the end of lunch, Lancelot said, um, what about this man? Do you know the truth about him? He's a spy, he's this and that. And he'd find out all this kind of stuff. And Jean said, yes, I do, but you know me. I like taking risks. I always have. And apparently Lancelot laughed, threw up his hands and said, good luck to you. Yeah. And she would later put all the account of her months at The Hague into Good Morning Midnight. But eventually she got pregnant, they went to Paris. Tragically, she lost her baby son in 1920, so she's by now 30 years old. He died in a convent hospital just down the street from the Rue Lamartine in the tiny room where the Longlets were living, very poor. And I've actually been in that room, it's yeah. exciting. I yeah. find it's now the hotel. Hotel de Plume, the Hotel of Pens. I went up into her room and even managed to clamber out onto the little iron balcony where she painfully remembered that she and Longlet had been drinking a glass of champagne at the moment her son died. Yeah, that was such and, a poignant And she thought. wrote one of her wonderful unpublished and most heartbreaking poems about this experience. And... Um, I think it was really to help her get over that, that Longlet, with the help of a kind family they'd met in Paris called the Richelots, she'd worked for a little bit looking after the children while she was pregnant. And Germaine Richelot fell very much in love with Jean, I think, and would always look after her. Do you? You think I, it was love? I do, because it's so obvious when Jean Reese was visiting and living in Paris later without help. You think, how come when you look at the street names, the woman she's writing about is living in this kind of ghastly dump you wouldn't be seen dead in. But you look up where Jean was living and she was always living in an incredibly nice address just around the corner usually from the Richelieu's. Ah. So Jean went off around Europe on a rackety, rackety life with John Langlet. The Richelieu's had got him a job in Vienna. And actually, Jean Reese's breakthrough, her first great story, is called Vienne, and it starts that. What happened quite quickly in Vienna was that 
her husband was caught doing some slightly iffy currency changing. They moved on to Budapest, where he was caught again, but doing, it would seem this time, embezzling. So they came sneaking back into Paris. And in 1924, the key transformation year, he, Jean Langlet, is arrested by the police for being a bigamist and for embezzling and all the rest of it. And he is sent to Fresnes prison for two years. But luckily, just before then, she'd already submitted a story of hers, Vienne, to Ford Maddox's Ford. And this is the key moment. Yes. This is the key moment. I mean, for people who don't know, we should probably explain a bit more about Ford Maddox's Ford, shouldn't we? Indeed. Ford Maddox's Ford, somebody called him a sil- Silenus in tweeds, meaning that he was a sexual predator yeah. Huge of, of, on a mega scale. But he was not good looking, was he? He was no. He looked like a walrus. Yes. He was very he, powerful, wasn't he? He was very yeah. powerful. And he was a quite extraordinary figure in Paris at that time. Gertrude Stein had put up the money for the Transatlantic Review, which was at that time the key literary magazine run by Ford. And as almost always with Ford, it had run for a year quite brilliantly and everybody wanted to be in it. In the autumn of 1924, it was coming up for the last issue. Gertrude Stein was going to stop supporting it and it was going to close. So she comes along with Vienne. Ford looks at it, renames her. It's a bit like a fairy story. You are no longer Gwendolyn Rhys Williams. You are going to be Jean Rhys. Do we know why he did that? Nope. I think he <laughs> do, we don't. We absolutely don't know, except I think he was right. He thought Gwendolyn Rhys Williams didn't sound half so good as Jean Rhys. Yes. He put a large chunk of Vienna into the magazine, alongside writers like Ernest Hemingway, Beckett, James Joyce, Tristan Zara, and this newcomer who nobody had ever heard of. It was an extraordinary thing to do. Ford and Stella Bowen took her in. There was a very awkward menage a trois which came unstuck, and I could be here all day telling you about that. (laughs) Um, Anyway, the interesting thing is that even when Reese and Ford had split up, I found looking in archives in America that Ford never stopped working for Jean Reese. So the love affair ended, and she wrote about him in Quartet, her first novel, a pretty hostile portrait, which she said afterwards which she deeply regretted. Mm. And Ford wrote a book called When the Wicked Man, which is actually dreadful, please don't bother to read it, in which there's a portrait of a sort of wild, creole woman who is demented and sexually depraved and God knows what. Despite all this... Literary revenge on both sides. Come the late 30s, mid-30s, up to his death, really, you find Ford all over the place in letters saying, do something for Jean Rhys, get her published for, she is the best. It seems like a running theme with Jean Rhys, though. She kind of puts people through such highs and lows and can be so awful to them, but she seems to have this lasting effect on them and they really want to support her and champion her, like Ford Maddox Ford and, and Lancelot previously mm. and then mm. Frances uh, Wyndham down the line and Diana Attill. The writing kind of wins out. She seems irresistible. She inspired um, loyalty, didn't she? She yeah. did. Um, I, I was amazed by the way Jean Longley. It was a bit like a sort of French farce, wasn't it, when they were in Paris and he was mm. constantly being deported or whatever it was <laughs> and then sort of making his way back. Yes, yeah. despite yeah, Always everything. coming back to yeah. always reappear. I mean, he, yeah. he loved to know question they loved each other didn't they They it was an extraordinary marriage but yeah even after they had divorced and she remarried
married. Leslie Tilden Smith, her second husband, had to put up with the fact that she would never, ever forget Jean Langlet, mm. who went on doing everything he could to get her books. I mean, we'll come to all that, the difficulty of publishing her. And what, what you were saying is so right about this kind of bewitchment that she cast upon people. One of her very late phases in her life in the 1970s, she was behaving appallingly. She never stopped behaving appallingly. <laughs> but the, the woman, Diana Melly, who was the wife mm. of George Melly, to whom she had behaved, I think, worse than anybody else. This is the world-famous jazz musician George and his wife Diana. And I was talking with her very recently, and she said rather dreamily, you know, if Jean had never written a single word, I would have loved her every bit as much. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So it's actually her. It's more unconditional. Mm. Yeah, it's an unconditional love, and she inspired that wherever she went. She inspired it even in pub keepers, who she said were always very kind and very broad-minded. Well, she was a good customer. She <laughs> certainly was that. But she hadn't <laughs> even started on the drink. <laughs> but ultimately a storyteller as well, and a raconteur. She just wanted to kind of communicate Absolutely. And I am, needless to say, almost her greatest fan. I think her (laughs) novels are so contemporary, so brilliant, Mm. so beautifully written. But you're absolutely right that if you read them aloud, she just holds you. Mm. I I was just going to say, you know, I was very struck by the sort of contrasts. She could be so sort of fragile and, you know, people wanted to look after her. And then this extraordinary sort of power of fury that she had inside her. Mm. I mean, it was the most fantastic contrast. She described it, I think, in White Sargasso Sea, Antoinette, the protagonist, is talking about her mother's temper. And she says, like hurricane, like a creole. Mm. And in After Leaving Mr. Mackenzie, which is Reese's second book, in which we actually meet the poor family from Dominica living in Acton. In that book, Julia Martin, who is the main character in it, is explosively, disgracefully angry at a family funeral. It reminded me rather of Molly Keane's good behaviour. It's that completely, you know, beyond the pale. But the interesting thing is that Reese describing Julia's rage and the effect it's had, and she has indeed been thrown out of the family home briskly for, for behaving like this, says that Julia felt wonderful. She <laughs> felt refreshed and exercised. And I think that's probably what it was like with Jean because it's very clear reading about these dreadful rages that afterwards it was just gone she just forgot it and you'd be back to you know the sweet delightful Jean who you could chat to all day isn't there an episode kind of later in her life when even Mm. Marvon who is very much well used to Jean's behaviour, she passes out because it's her rage is so virulent and unexpected. It is extraordinary. So what happened was, Mary Vaughan was born in 1922 mm. to Jean Langlet and Jean Rhys and spent most of her life living in Holland. Very, very unlike Jean, she had none of this temperament at all. But when Rhys herself was 78... And she was a tiny little woman, very fragile. At this point, she had to be carried up and downstairs. She got little arms like twigs. She couldn't hold a pen. But such was the force of her anger. She couldn't bear to be alone when she was in London. And so when poor Mary Vaughan, after about two hours of her mother, said, you know, got to go now, Mum, Jean got hold of a knife and she said she was going to slash George Mellie's 
amazing. I mean, he had the most astonishing collection of surrealist art, you know, Magritte's and Ernst's and Dali's. And she said that I meant it, that she was going to slash them if Mary Vaughan left the room. And such was the force of her rage that Mary Vaughan passed out. It never happened with anybody else. I mean, we should talk about the drinking. We haven't really talked about the drinking, have we? But it's a huge theme right from the start. There is, of course, a tradition. I must be careful I put this. But in the Caribbean, drinking is not regarded in quite the same way, or was not then. At that time, yeah. And certainly Jean, from an early age, remembered her father encouraging her to mix cocktails for him and his friends and sit on their knees and stir the drinks. It was all rather seductive. Plainly, by the time she was in Paris, she was drinking hard. I think that's when it began, when she was a lonely, frightened young woman. Consolatory. With, yeah. And that's when she seems really to have taken to drink. She drank her way shamelessly I would say she never hid it there's an amazing late story of James Fox the wonderful writer he remembered his first encounter with her at a party when Jean was in her 70s at Sonia Orwell's house and he saw this tiny little figure in sort of the pink light that she always liked. She, she was very ladylike. Was very ladylike, always impossible. Yes. It was like a mask. There were two jeans. So the ladylike jean would have been sitting on the sofa all alone in her very nice dress, pink light to flatter her skin. And she was drinking. And James Fox looked at her and he saw that she'd got a drink in either hand. <laughs> in one hand was a glass of champagne and the other a glass of whiskey. And he said, our eyes met, and I've never seen a look of such black defiance. And the question I keep asking is why it is that we judge Jean Rees on her drinking in a way that we would never judge Elizabeth Bishop, Willa Cather, let alone the men. I was going to say Hemingway and the rest, yeah. I try never to get cross on Jean Rees's behalf, but I feel a little bit cross that we are so judgmental. You're absolutely right. We've come to the subject of her drinking. Well, the only thing I would say is we did make an earlier podcast, actually, about literary drunks, didn't we? So we had and she did pop up there. But it's in also interesting because actually the drinking is quite inextricable from her writing often because there's a lot of drink in her novels. And, and again, she's quite brazen about it. She doesn't shy away from it. And actually, I think Anna in Voyage in the Dark, there are even a couple of times where friends of hers maybe comment on how much she's drinking. So there's an awareness there. And, you know, and even Jean would have stints where she wasn't drinking. And I tend to think that's probably just to show that she could not drink. Well, maybe we have said enough about the drinking. <laughs> all, all I would add is that she was so open about it. Yeah. There was a wonderful moment when I went to the little village where she lived at the end of her life. I met the man who, as a little boy, had been her next-door neighbour. And he remembered, as a child, peeking through the window at this old lady, watching television with a bottle of whiskey in her hand and swigging from the bottle. <laughs> but that's Jean. So, Miranda... She's in Paris. She's mm. had the affair with Ford Maddox Ford. Yes. When does she leave Paris? She left Paris in the late 20s. She was found in England by Ford, who got her first 
a collection of stories which are called Bohemian Sketches of Paris and were published by Cape in 1927. And why did she leave Paris? Because Longley was in prison and she... Partly because of that, but of course he was only in prison for two years. In mm. 1926 he came out. But I think it was mostly because she'd fallen out with Ford and with Stella. She'd had a quarrel with her dear friend Germaine Richelieu. And it was very clear that if she was going to make a future as a writer, and let us never forget that Jean Rhys was driven she said, it is what I was put on the earth to do. And she had had it made very clear to her that if she wanted to progress in writing, she needed to go back to England. As chance would have it, an agent called Leslie Tilden Smith had written to Ford Maddox Ford in Paris and said, do you know of any writers who I could help or represent? And Ford wrote back and said, yes. And Leslie met Jean, he was then married, but he started putting her up or paying for her rooms and quite soon she fell into a relationship with him. And from 1928 until his own death, Leslie Tilden Smith devoted himself, he gave up doing any other work at all, he just looked after the career of Jean Rhys. He found her publishers, he typed out her work, I think he probably picked her up off the floor when she got drunk, he often got just as drunk as she did. One occasion they were both put in Beau Court, yes. Magistrate's Court, in prison for I the night. Yeah. <laughs> the I, pair fist, of them. Fisticuffs in the street at three in the morning. Were they married? They were married they at were, that point. They were yeah. married. And they lived a very bohemian life. And I think Leslie tried with all his might to get Jean to do the one thing she seemed absolutely incapable of doing. And again, I, I really like her for it. She could not do this thing of networking, getting to know the right people, mm. which, as all of us know, is key and always has been key. She'd lucked out in Paris with Ford Maddox Ford. She'd lucked out coming back to England. Jonathan Cape really admired her first novel, all good. But you need more than that. And Quartet, the first novel, was received with mixed enthusiasm, as was all her work, because the complaint was always very interesting, wonderful style, remarkable voice, but why so squalid? Yeah. Give us a bit of class. Give us Paris in Maxime's. Don't give us Paris in the back streets. Yeah. And she was never going to do that. But, I mean, despite the fact the work was seen as dark and unattractive, Mm. she wrote a sequence of novels and published a sequence of novels about that, didn't she? About Paris and the experience of women down and out in Paris. Her honesty is one of the qualities I most admire about her. She could look at herself unflinchingly. There's a wonderful quote about her by Paul Bailey late in life when he said that what he really admired by Rhys was her ability not to just confront horror, but to walk down into the abyss and take us with her. It's a voice like no other. It's whispering in your ear. It's not that thing Richard Holmes said so brilliantly of the handshake across time. It's somebody who knows you from inside your own head. She's you and you're her. And it's just a connection that's terrifying. The last of that series of novels, Good Morning Midnight, it appears in 39, doesn't it? I know it's your favourite. I, I loved it, but it's it's dark. <laughs> Tell us about it. It is, in many ways, the darkest of Reese's novels. At the time, it was incredibly difficult to find a publisher for it at all. It did eventually get published by Constable in 1939, and the reviewers 
loathed it. I think it must have broken Reese's heart. I was so grateful when I was told, but it's funny. And I said, funny? I thought it was the blackest thing I'd ever read. In parts, it is funny, It's the story of Sasha Jensen, who's a woman in her later years, walking knowingly through Paris to her death. And she knows she's going to die. And she ends with this sort of brilliant allusion to Molly Bloom. But what is true is that the whole way along, there are these black black jokes by Sasha and this cynical voice and what really fascinated me was that when she really meets her match the gigolo in part four she talks to him and she talks to us and this was a voice that I had never heard in fiction before it's a voice that is talking to the reader and to René within the book. And it's the fourth wall voice. And Miranda Hart and Phoebe Waller-Bridge derive directly from that voice and admire her work tremendously. This is Fleabag we're talking you, about. Yeah, Fleabag, yes. exactly. But this is where it comes from. It's this voice that goes in and out. And when she talks to you, there's a kind of directness and an honesty that is... Very moving and very powerful. You you cannot forget Sasha. You don't like her, but you will never forget her. I think her. with with especially with Good Morning Midnight, I like how you know she completely sets her stall out from the very beginning. I mean, it, it mm. opens with the song "Gloomy Sunday," so you yes. kind of know the tone. And she says, "Last night was a catastrophe." The woman at the table next to me started talking to me, and so you kind of get this voice immediately. But then she kind of draws you in with that because then she can completely floor you with the mention of her of her baby dying almost in passing and it's and the use of repetition when she's talking about that and how the midwife or the nurse had said wear this special corset and it'll it'll be as if it didn't happen you you'll have, get your figure back but yeah. it's just heartbreaking she's expected to go on but these are just kind of little moments dotted throughout but with a bit of a light touch along the way now leslie dies doesn't he in 1945 and then things really do start to go downhill Leslie tragically died in 1945. So bad was Reese's reputation with his family that his daughter, by his first marriage, actually thought that he'd been poisoned by Jean. After that, a very, very dark period of Reese's life begins. In the late 40s, Reese married again. For a third time. For a third time. She never ceased to attract men until the day she died, nearly 90. So she married another complicated character called Max and Max was the cousin of good straightforward Leslie but Max alas was caught just like her first husband embezzling and in 1950 remember that Reese has not been published since 1939 this wonderful book which had passed completely unnoticed and in 1947 my favorite of the wartime stories which I passionately recommend for their honesty and again they were just too gloomy. And just before Max, the third husband, was sent off to prison, into their house in Beckenham had walked an extraordinary figure called Selma Vastias. And Selma was a big shot of the BBC in the days when radio drama was in its infancy. And it's the beginning of a very happy story, which did become happy eventually. But Max was convicted and sent to prison in Maidstone for two years. And while he was there, Reese admirably went and stayed in rooms over a pub put herself on trial in an incredible document published with smile please called the diary of the rope maker's arms which is where she said this extraordinary sentence about i have to earn my death 
which is what she saw as the one justification for her life, her writing. Max emerged, unable to get a job, with no money. And they're destitute, aren't they? I mean, destitute hardly begins to describe it. I think Max was 70, Jean was 60 plus. And they were living in places like a horse box, the hold of a boat, a ghastly time. And it was right at the end of all this that Selma returned into the picture in 1957 with the news that at last she had managed to place Good Morning Midnight. It was going to be unheard of in those days, an hour-long radio play yeah. read by Selma. And I've listened to it in the Tulsa archive. Have that's you? that's ah. why I keep saying, for God's sake, listen to Jean Rees, because when you listen, I mean, I know now what hair standing on end means. My hair literally prickled. And it was going, it's extraordinary performance. Good Morning Midnight needs to be heard. It's amazing. And I say this because hearing it, for the first time, was Diana Rattel and Frances Wyndham, working with her at André Deutsch, who had actually been reading Jean Rees and trying to find her for years, and he'd already been the first publisher of The Snipe He's a great discoverer of writers, isn't he? Absolutely. Who somehow, over the next nine years, and poor Jean Rees, they came to her from André Deutsch and said, have you got a novel ready? Well, she'd been thinking about White Sagasso Sea ever since they'd made one return trip in 1936 to Dominica when she saw her ruined home, everything gone, all lost. And that was when she started playing with the word Sagasso in her diary and talking about some book or something. Yes, some why Sagasso? Sagasso is the wild sea of wrecks. It's got this strange weed in it called sagassum, which I actually saw when I first arrived on Dominica. It's very smelly, it's very yellow, and it's very clinging. But it moves around. But above all, it lies under the surface. Mm. And really, I think that's what it's about. It's about the smooth surface and underneath it, horrors are happening. And White Sagasso Sea, as we know, is the extraordinary prequel to Jane Eyre, which Jean Rhys might have been thinking about ever since she first arrived in England and had to read about Bertha Mason. Back at the Perth School, yeah. But in 1957, she said to Frances and Diana, oh, I've got a novel already. It'll be be with you in six months. I I think she actually, bless her, believed it. But of course it wasn't ready. And... Nine years later, they were still teasing it out of her. Yes, let's just say that again. Nine years later. Nine years later. (laughs) But oddly, the first reviews, to my great surprise, were not all wonderful. The real success came about two years, four years later in America when wonderful reviews, I mean, the reviews we all dream of forever and ever, came from V.S. Naipaul. And Mm. I would swear almost every word of it had been written by By Francis Wyndham. I I, I read it and I think I can recognise the style. And the other wonderful review was in the New York Review of Books, which was Al Alvarez. And between them, those two said, she isn't just great, she is the finest living writer. And with that, as in a fairy story, everything changed. In America, they simply couldn't publish enough books of her. This is the late 60s, by the way. This now, is the it? late 60s, mm. early 70s. It's really the early 70s. So remember, by now, Jean is in her 80s. 
And above all, she is a recluse. She cares passionately about her work, but she's a very, very shy woman. That's partly why she drank. She's really scared of people. She always thinks they're going to be doing something horrible or making fun of her. Judging her badly. Judging her. And so the idea of umpteen interviewers queuing up to get stories about Ernest Hemingway or Gertrude Stein, she was just like, no. And there was one moment, she wrote Frances Wyndham, when Parry Match's interviewer and photographer actually chased her into the hairdresser and she was under the dryer, cowering, trying to hide. And she'd have hated that, wouldn't she? Because she was always beautifully presented. She liked to arrive looking also, fabulous. If she couldn't network, then she clearly couldn't do all the publicity. I mean, she couldn't, but they did a sort of deal where Sonia Orwell, who was another woman, who completely understood the drinker, loved the writer, utterly admired her, and also understood Jean's extreme vanity and insecurity, which went together hand in glove. But Sonia understood that. So the deal was that Sonia would invite Jean up to London, and Jean would stay in her house, Sonia would give parties, invite the world in, but would at the same time protect Jean. She could sit on her sofa, drink her champagne and her whiskey, toddle upstairs to bed. And there were a specific number of people allowed through who would be able to interview her. But her vanity still shows right at the end of her life when she ordered for her cottage in Devon, which by now had become a place of pilgrimage. People would come from all over the world to this awful little cottage where they would find Jean with a pink light lying on her pink velvet chaise long with a martini <laughs> all ready to meet them. And she was felt quite safe. This is Jean at nearly 90. And that's how the interviewers describe her, with a mixture of sort of wonder and amusement. So she died in 79. I think the last question I'm going to ask you, just thinking about time, is her influence since. I think what is really important about Jean Rees today is partly as she is at last being recognised as one of the first Caribbean writers to recognise the importance of that voice. Mm. So back in Mm. 1964, she was one of the first to read Derek Walcott Mm. and say the voice of the West Indies, as she called it, is the new coming voice for the future, which was remarkable for those times. She's a voice that is very, very much followed and read now at colleges. She is actually on a huge number of colleges. So I think she is having her moment now, and I I just very much hope that this moment will continue. Miranda, thank you. Just fascinating. Thanks so much for being with us. It's been absolutely lovely. We've been talking about probably my favourite author of all time, who I will never, ever tire of reading. In fact, I'm back reading Good Morning Midnight for, I think, perhaps the 15th time. (laughs) Now, Miranda has to leave us. I've got my eye on the clock, and I think so has she. But before she goes, I am just going to ask her for a book recommendation. By Jean Rhys. Doesn't have to be, whatever you like. I will make it Jean Rhys, and I will make it one of her short stories, and it's called I Spy a Stranger. It was written in a Norfolk house when she'd been thrown off the RAF base where Leslie was working for disgraceful behaviour. That was another yeah. terrible, terrible episode, a wasn't it? A terrible episode. <laughs> but I Spy a Stranger is one of the stories that they would not publish after the Second World War because it was too depressing. And it's the most searingly honest account of Jean herself. We haven't talked about that whole thing of the Reese woman in the books and the Reese who was Reese. And the key difference is if you look at the characters in her novels, they do not read and they don't write. 
if you take Jean Rhys's writing away from her, she isn't Jean Rhys anymore. And that's the woman she wrote about. It's yeah. a very significant difference. Easy to make the mistake of conflating her with yeah. her heroines, anti-heroines. Yeah. They're facets of her, brilliantly used. But I Spy a Stranger actually is one in which you really can see it's a terribly honest account. And it's brilliant. And what's frightening is this ability to look like a really brilliant artist into the mirror. Everything is there and none of it is good. And we'll have more book recommendations a little later on. Slightly Foxed is a small publishing house in East London. It was founded 20 years ago by two editors, Gail Perkis and Hazel Wood, and the team began publishing a quarterly magazine for literary nonconformists all about lost and forgotten books. The contributors have always been unusual, and while some are distinguished writers, journalists or academics, others come from very different walks of life. Two decades later, the magazine has a global readership, but it still loves finding new readers. It's posted out four times a year to more than 60 countries, and every year the team also reissue out-of-print books they feel deserve a new audience. The annual subscription is very reasonably priced, and it gives you free access to the digital archive of all the back issues, and that's over a thousand articles to explore. You can sign up for a subscription at foxcourtly.com or if you'd rather talk to a real person, ring the London office on 020 7033 0258. That's 020 7033 0258. Thanks. Book recommendations in a moment. Before we get to that, we have another of our book lovers' days out from Anna. Okay, well, we are going to return to uh, Paris's left bank, which we briefly visited earlier with Jean, Uh and go to Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop. The the bookshop where it stands today first opened in 1951 by an American called George Whitman. But he actually inherited the name from uh, Sylvia Beecher's bookshop, which had actually been closed during the Nazi occupation in Paris. This is the ultimate literary... It's hard to know how to describe it. The ultimate literary bookshop, isn't it? It it is. So it's an English language bookshop. It's kind of become a hub, a centre for various literary groups and gatherings over the years. When it was under Sylvia Beach, it had all of the expat writers such as Hemingway, Gertrude Stein, Scott Fitzgerald, T.S. Eliot, etc., etc. And Sylvia Beach also actually published James Joyce's Ulysses in 1922, when nobody else dared to. But then when Whitman took it over, you had the likes of the beat poets, so Anne Ginsberg and William Burroughs, but also Nais Nin, Henry Miller, James Baldwin. Um, it's everyone, Everybody. Isn't it? And then that's the ethos that they've continued. They want it to be kind of a visiting place, not just a bookshop, but a kind of a lending library, a place where people can seek refuge. And so they run, I think it was started by Whitman, but they have visitors who they call well, guests, I should say, called Tumbleweeds. And they've now had more than 30,000 writers and artists, known as Tumbleweeds, stay there where you can actually stay in beds, which are kind of amongst the bookshelves. And so you can have a bed for the night. But 
Three things are asked of them, to read a book a day, help at the shop for a few hours a day, and produce a one-page autobiography, which they keep them all, so there's now a full archive, which would be fascinating to read. I didn't know about this. This is amazing. How yeah. lovely. It's, and so it's kind of got this sense of communal living there, while also running a fully functioning bookshop. I mean, it's also just a beautiful place to visit, lots of nooks and crannies. Yeah, directly, you've been, haven't you? I've been a couple of times, What's yeah. So it's directly opposite Notre Dame. It's right by the Seine, directly opposite Notre Dame. You cannot miss and it's got very cheerful colours outside of it. It's got a very nice cafe next door to it. It used to be a monastery, actually, the building. So it's, it makes for lots of little reading corners and you can have a good rummage round. They have an event space as well. They've had all sorts of people. Zadie Smith has, has spoken there a couple of times and they kind of have weekly events it is a must visit in Paris, isn't yeah. it? I mean, if we haven't sold that to book lovers, I, I don't know where they want to go if they don't want to go there. <laughs> exactly. There's a little quote from George Whitman. He says, I created this bookstore like a man would write a novel, building each room like a chapter. And I like people to open the door the way they open a book, a book that leads into a magic world in their imaginations. Perfect. And having heard from Anna, there is news about Anna, isn't there, I'm girl? afraid there is. Anna has been with us since she was an undergraduate, many moons ago, 13 years to be precise. <laughs> she started for, I think, a day a week doing incredibly boring stuff like filing and stuffing envelopes. Then she went on to do a master's and she started to do two days a week. And at some point or other, we obviously said, well, we're just going to have to employ you full time. She wants to spread her wings and so very sadly we're going to have to say goodbye to It's her. such a shame, because I have to say, but Anna was axiomatic in the podcast too. It has to be said that if you become fully foxed, as Anna has, you you never actually go away. So <laughs> We're yeah. going to miss her a lot. Oh, we I'm are. We're going to miss yes. you. Well, Except, yeah. I, I mean, there will still be events and I, I'll... Well, we need and, you. We'll yeah. need you for events, <laughs> desperately. Yeah. I can definitely come and have a glass of wine <laughs> in a bookshop, for sure. <laughs> but... but um, by the same token, as we're saying farewell to Anna, I'd also like to say hello to Jemima Ratcliffe, yes. who joined us last June as an intern and has been such a success that she is going to become a full-time member of staff very soon. She has got a smile on her face. She's smiling because she doesn't know so how hard you're going to work She's well on the way to being footy fox, exactly. <laughs> We're very sorry to see you go, Anna. We would never have done so well with the podcast if it hadn't been for all the work you put into it. So thank, thank you. you very much. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Let's wrap up this episode with our usual reading recommendations. And I'm going to start with Gail. Well, I would like to recommend a book called The Death of Grass by John Christopher, which was first published in 1956, and it is the story of a pandemic. This is a book about a virus that affects crops, and it starts in China, interestingly, and it kills rice, and it spreads, and it mutates, and they try to contain it, and they're not successful. The book opens with a man called John Custance, who's an engineer living in London, happily married with a couple of children. And there are distant reports of famine in China and people starving in Hong Kong. And then it spreads to India and the subcontinent and to Africa. Because it mutates, it then starts to affect wheat and rye and barley and basically every form of crop on which mankind survives. And, of course, it arrives in England. The bulk of the book is about John Custance. He has a brother who farms up in Westmoreland in a very secluded valley, protected 
on three sides by very high um, mountains. And it's his journey with his family out of London as the country begins to fall apart and the most terrible things happen. It's a, it's a bit like Lord of the Flies. Yeah. That, you know, the English are frightfully polite and leading a very civilised life and gradually all this crumbles and it's extremely <laughs> exciting. It's one of those books that you just shiver and think, what if, you know? Yes. It's been reissued by Penguin Modern Classics with a very good introduction by Robert McFarlane. And the name again is? Uh, it's The Death of Grass. If you want to give yourself the creeps. Oh, yes. Wet Sunday in the know, winter. Like Day of the type thing, yes, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely, exactly. yes, like John Wyndham. Uh, Hazel. Well, the book I'm going to recommend is very, very different from that. It's <laughs> called um, Along the Enchanted Way. Slightly soppy title, but it is essentially a romantic book, I think, by someone called William Blacker. And it was recommended to me by a Romanian friend. Reading this book obviously sort of awoke all kinds of memories for her. And William Blacker's this um, rather sort of Paddy Lee Firmerish character. In fact, Paddy Lee Firmer apparently loved this book, which was published in 2009. And I should say at this point, if you don't know who Paddy Lee Firmer is, listen to the podcast, because we did one not, not so long ago. Indeed, yes, we did. Anyway, he went to Romania for the first time in 1989, when everything was falling apart. I think his aim really was to see a sort of civilization which hadn't really been changed, you know, where farming was done as in medieval times. And after these two short visits, he went back in 2000 and stayed there for eight years. And first of all, he lived in the northern, sort of very forested part. And, you know, there are very, very telling and sort of romantic descriptions of the summer when they were harvesting, you know, scything. He learned to scythe. And the winters when it was just sort of so cold that you couldn't really go out except to go to the tavern to have a drink. And huge amounts of alcohol do seem to have been drunk. And then he walked south. The kings of Hungary gave land to the Saxon Germans to defend the country against the Tartars and the Ottomans. So this is very sort of border country. And living there, on his first visit, he'd met some gypsy families. And the gypsies are a considerable minority in Romania, but only partially really accepted. And he got to know this gypsy family and actually fell in love with one of the sisters, and there's a, there are descriptions of this extraordinary lifestyle. And in 2000, the German government offered passports to the Saxon Germans, who all started going back and leaving these amazing houses that they'd built and huge fortress-like churches. So when William Blacker got there, all these houses were falling down and many of them were lived in by these gypsy families. And it's really largely a description of how he got to know this world of the gypsies. They had two sort of functions in Romania, really. They were great metal workers, so they mended everything and made everything. And also they provided music in the taverns at night. And it was a kind of wild life. He lived for about eight years or so with one of the gypsy sisters and had a child by her. And in the meantime, started a movement to repair these beautiful houses. And apparently, Prince Charles, as he then was, saw a pamphlet he'd written and took it up. And he has houses in Romania, apparently, now. Um, but, I mean, William Blacker didn't like to see the changes that were happening in Romania. It is just very fascinating. I knew nothing about Transylvania until I read this book. Thank you. It's Sorry. Great.
Well, I am going to recommend a graphic novel, actually, called Alison by Lizzie Stewart, published by Serpent's Tale. And I think it's either one of the first or possibly the first graphic novel that they've published. But I absolutely loved it. And then I have bought copies for several friends. It came out in the summer of last year. And there was quite a lot about it at the time. It's the story of Alison, who is brought up in rural Dorset, but then leaves that life when she meets an older artist. And then she follows him to London and it's essentially about her life throughout the 80s and into the 90s on that London art scene she starts out as an artist model but she then begins to kind of learn the craft herself and it's about her beginning her own artistic career and the friends that she meets bed sits and parties and but the actual book is just beautiful it's it's so painfully it's beautifully realized but it's also got lots of little notes and letters her own sketches as in Alison's own sketches and artworks it almost feels like a scrapbook but it's got this narrative throughout it just brought that whole era very vividly to life and it's also very moving that there will be a tear or two along the way no absolutely not it sounds very rich in all ways rich yeah and it's a beautiful book to actually give somebody as well well on those new year recommendations we're going to leave you investigate the show notes on your app or indeed the fox website if you need a reminder of the title or name of a book or writer that we've mentioned today foxquarterly.com is the web address we'll be back with another quarterly podcast on april 15th in the meantime do not miss the next quarterly magazine which will be published on march the 1st We're excited about the year ahead. Thanks for joining us on our first 2023 literary trek off the beaten track.